2: should federal courts protect the ability to read and write? In a federal class action on behalf of Detroit school children, the plaintiffs point to a lack of resources and facilities, among other things, and claim that the state of Michigan's disinvestment in Detroit schools has resulted in illiterate students. But the state, relying on a 1973 Supreme Court decision that education is not a fundamental interest, is arguing that there is no right to literacy, and a federal court is going to decide whether the case then can go forward. Our guests to talk about this today are uh, Kimberly Robinson, a professor at the University of Richmond School of Law, and James Ryan, the dean of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. When uh, I was in a previous life, I used to work at uh, the New York City school system. I was general counsel there, and I worked on New York City's case Uh, supporting a lawsuit in the New York State Court of Appeals uh, and other New York courts to get additional funding for the city school system. And most of the uh, cases, Kimberly, that have been brought over the last several decades have been like that one. That is, state court cases under state constitutions about whether or not there is equitable or adequate funding or equitable and adequate funding for school systems to provide the right level of education for students. Here we have a claim that there's a federal constitutional right to literacy. What exactly are the plaintiffs arguing in support of that position?
1: So they are arguing that the United States Constitution, specifically the 14th Amendment, protects a right to literacy. So they're distinguishing in claiming a right to literacy. They are building on um, a couple of cases, but sort of distinguishing themselves from that. So there's San Antonio Independent School District versus Rodriguez, That held that there is not a fundamental right to education, but the court, however, did specifically note that the plaintiffs had not alleged um, the denial of specific minimal skills that would be necessary to to exercise other fundamental rights. Here, however, the Detroit litigation specifically alleges that the schools are not providing them adequate literacy to enable them to function as citizens, to basically sort of read and speak effectively. And so this sort of taps into that space where the United States Supreme Court said, well, the plaintiffs have not alleged this here. In the Detroit litigation, they have alleged this. And so they argue that this is a violation of their 14th Amendment rights in the United States Constitution, which is why they are now in federal court instead of state court, which is the litigation you referred to before was previously in state court.
3: Jim, how strong is their claim? Well,
1: to pick up on what Kimberly said, it's a completely
3: plausible claim legally in so far as the court left open the possibility that there might be a right to a minimally adequate education. Um, in in cases after Rodriguez, the court went out of its way to say that remained an open question. Um, and. It hasn't really been litigated in federal court prior to now because litigants have turned to state courts and tried to pursue a right to more than a minimally adequate education. I think um, part of the reason it hasn't been pursued was the fear that this might be aiming too low. Um, But if there is um, a right to a minimally adequate education, surely literacy would comprise a component of a minimally adequate education. So it's a fascinating case because in some respects, it goes back to a question that's been open for more than 40 years, um, and explicitly left open, um, explicitly left open by the court. And you might be wondering, well, why would the court say there's no general fundamental right to education, but there might be a right to a minimally adequate education? And here, Kimberly um, is exactly right, that the rationale would be that a minimally adequate education is necessary to exercise other um, rights that are explicitly set forth in the Constitution.
2: Well, Kimberly, the, the plaintiffs also seem to be relying uh, beyond the claims you've, you you and Jim have set forth that on equal protection, the Civil Rights Act. Is there an angle that they can make here that given the the racial makeup of students in the schools in Detroit that there's really a a discriminatory intent or effect here that might booster their bolster their case for getting the federal court to intervene.
1: They do actually specifically allege that the state of Michigan has intentionally discriminated against these children who are largely children of color, mostly African American, as well as low-income children. So they do specifically allege intentional discrimination under the 14th Amendment. That is very difficult to prove in court that they intentionally targeted these children um, because of their race. However, they have, you know, sufficiently alleged that to, you know, bring such a claim.
3: Jim, is there any other way to argue that the state has to provide an education to its children than the way these plaintiffs have chosen to? Could they have had an easier path? Well, typically what litigants have done is gone to um, state courts because all state constitutions guarantee a right to education, which is why all the school finance cases um, up until now or the the vast majority of them after um, the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Rodriguez has been, br- been brought in state courts. Um, my understanding is that an attempted suit in Michigan based on the Michigan Constitution um, was not successful, which is, uh, I think, part of the reason why these um, litigants are in federal court rather than state court. But that is a, um, you know, that's a more straightforward path uh, and a more well-worn path because of all the litigation that's occurred in nearly every state in the country.
2: Kimberly, do you think that the federal courts are going to want to get involved in this sort of question? Not all state courts have really wanted to. It's been sort of a mixed bag over the years as to whether state Supreme Courts are willing to do it. Do you think the federal courts are going to show any appetite for getting involved in this issue?
1: You know, I think what you're going to see at the lower court level is a mixed bag as well. In other words, some federal courts may see um, this as something that basically it's very close to what was argued in Rodriguez and say that it's foreclosed by that. But I think there's sufficient, I think the allegations and extreme conditions that they allege in Detroit could lead at least a a majority of the federal court to say, no, this is something distinct from what we saw in Rodriguez. So in the Rodriguez case, it was really about funding disparities and the gap in funding that was between more affluent districts and low income districts here. We are talking about really, the types of conditions that you see in oftentimes many third world countries. So you have, you know, classrooms without um, the facilities. They talk about, you know, infestation, vermin in the classroom, inadequate um, heating and cooling of the classrooms, teachers who are not, you know, certified or qualified to teach. I mean, there's just a lot of basic things that are not being provided to these children, and they lay it out in great detail in the complaint. And I think there will be many federal judges who are willing to say, this simply goes too far and there should be some basic constitutional protection for these children. The the challenge with that may be what Jim alluded to, which is that if the, if the federal courts do ultimately agree to it, they may only recognize something that is quite minimal. In other words, it may help children in extreme conditions in Detroit and other um, inner-city neighborhoods, but it won't address some of the additional disparities that some of the state litigation was designed to address, which is children who weren't in schools that really can shock the conscience but still were being provided an education that does not equip them to be effective citizens and engaged Um, members of our society seeking, you know, gainful employment. So that is one of the dangers.
0: Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, We don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking
1: celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way, from design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon, official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off
0: using promo code radio20 at bloomberglive.com slash greenfestival.